You're listening to 100 p.m. in New York City, episode 59. p.m. is the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product managers across five great cities to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product. Today's guest is Spencer Wright, manufacturing guy at large. If you'd like to learn more after the show, be sure to visit our website at 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for hot topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, product coach and founder of The Development Factory. Let's dive right in and say hello to Spencer. So my name is Spencer Wright. I, with a high school friend, co-founded a company that makes a single channel FM radio. I also run a manufacturing newsletter and kind of into the manufacturing world. And lastly, I work at a company that makes very specialized CAD software for 3D printing. And this is a bit of a a special episode of 100 p.m. insofar as I'm in your studio. You are. What is this? Where are we? We're in my basement in (laughs) Crown Heights in Brooklyn. Uh, The table that we're sitting at is primarily a workbench that is used for doing final assembly and fulfillment of this radio that the company that I co-own makes. The studio portion of it belongs to The Prepared, which is a newsletter and now podcast that I also run, which is kind of focused on engineering and manufacturing. But it's a little bit broader than that. It's really kind of the business of hardware product development, as it were. So we talk to product managers here on this show, 100 Product Managers. And if you look at your we'll call it a resume. If you look at all of the journeys that you have taken in your career, one would not, I think, instinctively want to refer to you as a product manager. Do you identify as a product manager? You know, I've gone back and forth about it. I think that now I think of myself a little bit more as a manufacturing person. My my website says manufacturing guy at large, which means nothing at all, obviously. But um, I, I have, though, kind of always worked with products in some way, products or projects. I started out in construction. I had a little business making custom bicycle frames for a couple of years where you know, you're know, you working with the customer to understand what they want and then making them a really, really fancy thing. You make one of them, you know, so you only get one shot to get it right. I then kind of went more into product. I worked for a company that made high-end windows and doors for a couple of years and was doing, again, kind of a broad range of things, some procurement, some manufacturing operations management. But my title was product manager, and that was really the core of what I did. And you know, now on a day-to-day basis, I don't necessarily think of what I'm doing as product management, but the kind of primary role in the things that I do is that, essentially. Okay, so let, let's start back in time. The, yeah. the door company, the first yeah. official product manager, it was Robot Doors. What are robot doors? Yeah, so uh, so I grew up in the Hamptons in eastern Long Island, um, like a very, very expensive construction market. And the company I was hired by makes basically the fanciest windows and doors that money can buy. So they operate mostly in the Hamptons and in you know, Park Ave and Martha's Vineyard, these kind of vacation areas in the East Coast mostly. And they've been hired by a celebrity to build the outside of a house. This was a like 8,000 square foot single bedroom residence on the beach in the Hamptons. And about 80% of the perimeter of the house was these huge glass doors. The doors 
were about seven feet wide and 10 or 12 feet tall or something like that. Each of them weighed about a ton, literally. And they were all electronic and they had a bunch of different control systems that allowed them to position themselves, lock themselves, unlock themselves, seal themselves to the elements. And the goal here was that this house in the middle of the summer could be completely opened up. You could open up the entire perimeter of the house and it would turn from kind of a building into a beach pavilion, basically. And you'd have this seamless transition from the house to the beach. They didn't let you keep the house after you No, and honestly, I think that part of my takeaway from it was that I, I wouldn't want to live there. It was not my thing. And I think that part of my lesson coming out of it also was that you know, product managing something that with that level of complexity is just was very difficult. Not only was what we were building very complex, but we were also existing. You know, this is a you know fifty or hundred million dollar project, and developing a complex system inside of a complex system is really really hard. And we also, I was in an experience as a product manager, and our, the company I was working for was kind of similarly inexperienced. And so <laughs> I. I kind of left and have worked on simpler and simpler things as much as possible since then. Right. Most people try to, they, they have a different career trajectory. They start simple and then they yeah. seek complexity. Yeah. You sort of peaked early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll get back to it. But honestly, like, I miss parts of that. But I think that I have also come to really enjoy, you know, having a what from the outside looks like a simple product and then, finding all these weird nuances in it. And, you know, it's it's pretty easy to create complexity and create hard problems if you want to, rather than like starting with something that's just really, really hard to begin with. And then every way you turn, um, you come up against something. Right. It's interesting. I mean, I love that you are in manufacturing and I love that a lot of your product experience has been with physical product mm-hmm. because Physical product is what most of us think about when we hear that term, product management. But of course, a lot of our guests and a lot more of the products that people speak about now are soft products. So I'm curious about your take on how it's different to be a product manager of physical products or or, or more specifically manufactured goods, as has been your experience. Well, I think that one thing to note here also is that in most of my roles as a product manager, I've also been responsible for some aspect of procurement or logistics or operations as well. And I think if I if I had been working for larger companies, if I had started my career working at Lockheed Martin or something like that, right, like a big, you know, hard engineering company or or Apple for that matter, that would be very different. But the kinds of companies I've worked at you know, it's been my responsibility to design a thing. And in order to know what to design, you have to have a supply chain that can inform you a little bit. And so I think that that push and pull between design and implementation is, yeah, it's very different. I constantly rely on my suppliers to tell me what's possible and then use that to inform the solution for whatever user problem I'm trying to address. I, I do also think that like the the language of software product management has not penetrated that deeply into hardware product management. I mean, I think it does in you know Silicon Valley like funded startups, but really that's a tiny fraction of the physical products that are made in the world today. And so 
you don't you don't think about writing a user story if you're designing like a watch or a microphone or you know like it's those aren't words that you would ever use and i think that i think that in some cases it has been useful for me to have that that language i also think that it's nice to be a little bit outside of that dogma myself and to have a little bit more i can kind of create my own flexibility in my jobs and take what's useful from software product management but also kind of you know ultimately like i'm going to i'm going to call up my sheet metal shop and say like hey what can you possibly do to fix this problem and just work through it kind of on the fly yeah i mean i, I think what's similar is that you're you're relying on engineering teams yep. what's different is the context of the conversations and you know certainly for many product managers one of the biggest challenges is learning how to be an effective communicator with all of your key stakeholders yeah. what can you say about the challenges of communicating with engineers in your space well i would i mean engineers sure it's suppliers more <laughs> like it's uh like i procure like a decent portion of the stuff that i buy for the products i manage from china and taiwan like not only is it not somebody who's sitting next to me or in the next room over it's somebody half a world apart who has very different cultural references than i do i do however want to note that like i've had in some cases worse problems with dealing with a supplier in chicago i think we we think of the cultural divides like linguistic challenges being a big factor in holding projects back or or kind of being a cause of issues. But I also find that like, you know, cross-cultural issues with somebody from different from a different part of the country can be very difficult as well. I would imagine that most people at startups work closely with engineers that they also see on a daily basis. And I for the most part haven't had that. Like my the team that is executing what I'm designing and and managing is very, very diverse and has very different daily rhythms than I do, right? They come to work at a different time. They eat different things. They they might not take a subway to work, right? Um, whereas I do. Are you a technical designer or is it really more you put together concepts and then part of what you're looking for from these supplier partners is for them to kind of supplant the, the engineering behind the aesthetic, if you will? Uh, much more the former. You know, I, I've never worked in a sheet metal shop, right? I've never worked in a laser engraving shop. I've never worked in all these kind of places. But my goal is to get as close to the person who's doing the actual work, the actual kind of implementation, as it were, and learn as much as possible what their constraints are, and then design that into the product. So when I was working on Robot Doors um, downstairs, there is this huge hangar that's full of people sanding and cutting wood and laborers basically right and then upstairs on the third floor there was kind of all the business management there was a bunch of drafts people i was in the second floor working in kind of a skunk works like environment and so we had twenty thousand square feet something like that and then we had a row of machinery we had milling machines and lathes to prototype things that we were going to then procure from outside and my desk was right there right so i i could you know, shoot spitballs at, at my machinist. You right? didn't. I didn't. No. Yes. Uh, and, but and th- but that relationship was totally critical. And like and also like I'm a I'm a halfway decent machinist myself. And so every once in a while I would go there and cut apart myself. You know. So yeah, I think that going into conversations with somebody who's going to make a thing for me, I really want them to be an expert in their field. Right. I I want to trust them to do the thing. However, is right. 
But I also, I want them to tell me when I'm making their job hard. And understanding as much as possible about what they're doing helps me do that. Right. Tell us about this radio company. First of all, what's it called? Uh, so the company is called Centerline Labs. Uh, we have one product, which is called The Public Radio. So I, <laughs> I, had, I had stopped working on Robot Doors and moved from eastern Long Island into the city. And my friend Zach, he wanted to make a radio for his mom. And he thought, you know, she only listens to NPR every day, so I'm just going to remove the tuning knob and just have it turn on to one station and there's only going to be a volume knob. It was this great Radio Lab episode about choice and about kind of the paralysis of choice when you have too many options. And we kind of took this philosophical stance that the seek and scan buttons on FM radios, they're overrated. No one really uses those. And really, no one really uses the tuning buttons either. They pretty much, if they're going to use FM radio, they're going to have a routine. Probably it's going to be the morning and the evening, and they're going to turn the radio on and turn it back off and not change the channel at all. We took that to an extreme and just removed the, the knob altogether. We also, in order to make our lives easier and partly to appeal to the kind of people we thought would have this kind of routine, we designed it so it fits into a mason jar. And so it was, it was partly a manufacturing constraint where we were like, hey, we're not Apple. We're not going to be able to make this you know beautiful brushed aluminum thing or anything like that. And partly it was just, you know, the kinds of people who might buy this product are, we should be charming them. We should be like delighting them in some way. And putting a radio, like an electronic device in a mason jar is a pretty good way to do that. And is that just to create enough projection of sound? Yeah, exactly. So the the genesis was we were actually, we were testing speakers. You, in order to test a speaker, you have to actually put it in an enclosure. Otherwise you won't, you won't actually hear very much. And so we had like cut a piece of cardboard with a hole in it and dropped a bunch of speakers in it and put it in like the one vessel that we had near us, which was a mason jar. And it ended up being a great resonator. And they cost like a buck and they're very easily available. And there was no engineering that had to go into it. And it just it just worked. It was a ended up being a much better hook to get people in a way. And yeah, the Venn diagram between NPR listeners, which is mostly our target audience, and people who like may have canned some jam at some point in their life is pretty significant. <laughs> I so. was going to ask, so NPR is the one channel that it's no, tuned to? No, no, no. So you can tune, you can, like, the product ends up being very complex. We're using the same electronics that any FM radio that you could possibly buy is using. We're actually using the same chip that was originally in the iPod Nano. So it's fully featured. It can do everything. But when we ship the device out, we tell it, tune to 89.3 or whatever station the customer asked for. We allow for them to choose anything they want. Like I have a couple of radios here. Most of them are tuned to Hot 97 because that's like that's what I listen to when I'm working downstairs, right? But most of our customers are going to listen to, like our biggest channels are WBEZ, WNYC, KCRW, big NPR stations. So the radio is made to order. Is it is it self-serve? I go to the website. It's like, pick your station. Do I get to pick my color? Nope, just station. The <laughs> After doing something that was so complex, like my my philosophy has been no more features. Like, <laughs> like I want one feature in this product if I can get it. So yeah, it's just you choose your station and that's basically it. The, the product management of the public radio, of the, of the product itself, 
has been purely an exercise in restraint. People email us and they're like, hey, can we get like a USB charging on the, can we get this be Bluetooth? And we say no to all of it. If we can make a certain customer, like a, one type of customer really, really happy, that's fantastic. We're a two-person company. Our bandwidth to try and expand to multiple different customer types is just limited. Not that we won't ever do it, but I want to be really, really sure that I'm doing one thing right before I try and do a second thing. Because we wanted to limit the functionality so much, it is meant that we had to build a whole suite of products to just make this thing, which has been honestly really fun because we, we really, really know what we're shooting for. Right? We are shooting for a single channel radio that works really well and that even though it's customized, it ships the next day. You place your order, it ships the next morning, which is really, really difficult to do, but we figured out how to do it, and it's only because we had that focus. And so do you assemble them yourselves, or they kind of arrive to you assembled? I have personally, in the past year, I've personally shipped 2,000 of them, something like that, um, which I got, I got pretty good at. A lot of long nights and weekends, especially after Thanksgiving. We have a contract manufacturer, so they, they make a couple of key components for us, and then they are also doing drop shipping as well. What that has meant, though, is that our manufacturing tools, the software and hardware that we provide them with to make this possible, have to be so much more robust, right? Like when it's just me doing the work, it's easy. Like you're, you'll, you'll train yourself to do things just right so that the tool that you're using doesn't break. Handing it off to somebody else and having another and another user and another stakeholder, right? This person, or this company, Worthington. Worthington is an incredible stakeholder in our business. Our partnership with them is incredibly important. And so it's no longer just about, you know, Spencer thinks it's easy to use. It's that they can train kind of anybody on their floor to do this thing, and it'll work, you know, 100 times out of 100. Because in manufacturing, like, that's, that's what's needed. You can't have... When, when things crash... It just causes huge problems, right? You know, our contract manufacturer, you know, they're they're paying their employees wages, right? And when the system's down and they like they're struggling to get it to work, that's money that they're losing. It puts pressure on us to be really, really stable and to explain things in a different way to them in our software tools. So there's really, and this, I guess, goes back to what you said at the outset about it being kind of a, a project within a project. So the the product is the finished radio that somebody can yep. go and, and order and then drop in their mason jar. Do you give them the mason jar or they have to we get do, their yeah. own? We do, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we do. All right. So they get their mason jar and they get their radio, but there's actually a second product, which is the internal tool that you developed. And is this software? Yeah, so there's there are... 20 different internal tools. So some of them are software, some of them are hardware. On the manufacturing line, there is a laptop that is displaying basically like a PowerPoint that shows the person working the manufacturing line what to do next. Then there's a series of pieces of hardware that support that process and a bunch of software that they're not even aware of that's doing things in the back end. So we have we have a cloud-based um, order management database that a contract built for us. And it handles, 
importing orders from our from our retailers. It handles creating shipping labels. Uh, it handles uh, lookup. So when a person is on the manufacturing line making like fulfilling an order, they don't even know it, but they're making API calls to a Heroku app, and it's pretty complex. Like it's doing a bunch of different stuff, and it could be doing so much more too, right? Like we're we mark orders as fulfilled, and then every 24 hours after that, we check to see if they've been delivered. And we, you know, we're emailing customers when their orders have shipped. We are recording quality issues. We're recording, uh, you, you have timestamps for every single thing that happens on the line. So the database itself has a ton of infrastructure. We have a, a handful, five or 10 different uh, Python and shell scripts that do different things uh, locally. And then we have a couple of pieces of hardware that make the entire thing possible. And you know, some of that is kind of like off-the-shelf stuff that we're just using in our system. But you have to think of the entire system as a product. You have to think of each... We have, we have these, these scripts that are doing like critical parts of our infrastructure and that if they don't work, then we don't get paid or our customers don't get their stuff, right? <laughs> like bad things happen. Yeah. Um, well, and it's it goes back to this idea of what is product. And so I was talking earlier about we think about physical product and then when we have conversations like we do on this show where folks are sharing how their different product teams are organized, you begin to think differently about what would constitute a product, even mm -hmm. if it's software and you start to slice it up based on certain features or maybe it's not based on features, maybe it's workflows. And so, you know, to build on what you're saying that a script, right, which, which the average person would never think of as being a product in this context kind of takes on an entire new identity. And yeah. so what it means to be a product manager or think with a product mindset is to look at all of those component parts as their own sort of miniature products. Yeah, there are definitely aspects of that underlying infrastructure that we have not done a great job product managing because we hadn't thought of them that way, right? We, or alternately, the stakeholders didn't exist yet, right? So our database really only supports one manufacturing location currently. And there are some pretty good reasons for us to support multiple manufacturing locations. There are also really good reasons. So yeah, currently when an order comes in, a shipping label is automatically created immediately. And then that order might be processed today or it might be processed, we, we give like a seven day um, window to our retailer. Typically we're shipping within 24 hours. And then what happens is our retailer has said, hey, ship this express, and we buy a really expensive shipping label. The customer isn't actually expecting it for like eight days, but we have paid like $35 for a shipping label, and then it's going to show up in like 36 hours, you know? So there are so many systems here where like it was only once we integrated with our retailer that we realized, hey, you know what? we really should be buying shipping labels at the time the order is being processed rather than the time that's being imported. Which is something that we would have never really thought about. And honestly, I think it'll probably be changed when we take on new retailer relationships, distributor relationships. Is it an online retailer right now? It is, yeah, okay. yeah. 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 So what's available in one location? Uh, depending on where you live, we sell it through our site directly, but then uh, for international orders. But then it's um, there's one retailer for U.S. orders. What does it retail for? Forty five dollars. We played around with that 
And honestly, I think I have come full circle. Like as a customer, I hate the 99 stuff, but as a business person, I think it's 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 in, it's an incredible piece of like behavioral psychology that I don't understand. Like people people will pay more for a thing if it ends in a 9. It's crazy. <laughs> and so is it forty five ninety nine? No, no, it's it's forty five dollars even currently. Okay. It, it has been really interesting thinking through things like that. The other one that uh, we debate about a ton internally was batteries. You know, as a as a customer, I hate I, I hate it when a thing shows up with no batteries. And the first time that we shipped it, we shipped twenty five hundred radios, and we included batteries, and it was a disaster. There are all these issues when you start shipping batteries that you can't ship them internationally. Like you can't, they have they have a shelf life, you know. And ultimately, like we don't really know how long they're going to sit around in our shop before we send them out. And it's just it's a better system overall for the world if the customer has to go to the bodega and buy a pair of AA batteries before they can use their device. It has made me rethink my actions as a consumer in ways that I wouldn't have expected. Right. Yeah. Was mom thrilled with the radio? She was customer number one? Or was she like, it's only got yeah. one channel? <laughs> yeah, Zach's, Zach's mom has been an amazing supporter of us. Uh, the first 2,500 that we shipped was, you know, it was like bubble gum and duct tape and a lot of pizza and beer and friends. <laughs> and we, we were really lucky. Uh, the company that I was working for at the time called Undercurrent, we had this office that, for reasons that aren't worth getting into, was not being fully utilized. And so we took over the lobby and made it into a manufacturing line and had like all of our friends show up and make this thing. And at the time, all of our manufacturing tools, all those, like the the database was Google Docs, right? And the API calls were all being made via the command line, which meant that we had to train someone a bunch to use that, and it really limited our ability to send more than like a couple a day, kind of right. Right. So Zach's mom helped us out a bunch. Like every, all of our families helped us out a ton. So we would go there. We would get there Friday after work, and we would spend like all evening prepping the line and getting everything ready. Then Saturday morning would come around, and like trying to f- like change gears, and all of a sudden you're you're now like this weird operations person and you're kind of the you're like the boss right like you were like telling people how to manufacture this thing yeah and like realizing like all these tools that we had made were just totally for us and they weren't very well thought through and we had designed fixtures around a single user story like in the parlance right rather rather than thinking about like the overall journey and what what someone assembling this thing would need to get out at the end if you're not there, if you're not like on the line watching people, you are worthless. Like this is there's and there's all this Toyota production system stuff. I think the one that I'm looking for is Genshi Genbutsu, which means go to the place, see the thing, or something to that effect. Yep, yep. And if you're not there like watching this thing get made, you have no role in trying to make that manufacturing process more efficient. And it's the same thing, like it's just like seeing people interact with your product. But people don't, you don't think of that in a manufacturing context the same way for some reason. 
So yeah, it was it was an incredibly enlightening experience. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, again, it parallels where where you don't necessarily readily see them. Right. This yep. idea of uh, observing users, understanding the workflows, and yep. building products that enable or expedite the true workflow rather than trying to force the user into some system that you think is great, which is, of course, exactly. you know, where so many software developers go wrong. And, and, you know, another great lesson in figuring out what works and then scaling it. It's like you had yep. to put those 2,500 together over pizza and beer to figure out how you were going to actually make it beyond that. Mm -hmm. Cool. It's funny, like I, I meet a lot of people who are like asking me about contract manufacturers. And to me, the idea that you would stop building them yourself after anything less than 2,500 is like, what are you doing? Like, you won't learn anything. Like, you'll build five and you'll learn a little bit. You build 50 or 500 and still, like, you don't really know what it's like to do this process. And it really is, we're, we'll ship like 10,000 units this year. And, I hope that at the end of this year we have a we have our process pretty well dialed, but that's that's a bunch of these products to make, and like last year we actually rolled out at we, so we had a contract manufacturer in Chicago who we ended up having to fire, and I think that part of the reason that was that we rolled out too quickly. Like we had only made twenty five hundred ourselves, and then we rolled out to them, and we didn't anticipate a bunch of issues that they they totally had. And it was because they were you know, even just like a flight away. It becomes very difficult to do that kind of user testing with them. And then if there's any kind of issue in that vendor relationship where you don't trust each other, then, yeah, having those conversations and asking them about the problems that they're having and really understanding their responses became very difficult because – they were just being jerks about it, kind of. Yeah, don't work with jerks. If don't you work with jerks, no, no. You said that you you do a lot of different kinds of things. Is this company now at a point where it can be a full-time endeavor, or do you have, you know, side-side jobs as well <laughs> for your side-side <laughs> projects? Uh, no, it's not. I think it is now more or less stable. I think that we, we know the big things that are in our way at this point, and... Our contract manufacturer, Worthington, is excellent. They We have a great relationship with them, and they are, I think, a key part of this is that they are able to step back from their whatever frustrations they might have actually doing the work that we're paying them to do and think about it as product managers themselves a little bit and, like, understand what we're getting at. And so I think that, like, over this year, we will slowly hand over more and more of the process to them, I, I hope. But the idea with the company is still kind of to be, you know, a thing that runs itself and that makes this product. Because this product, we, we, were, we were out of production for like two years, between 2015 and 2017, I guess it was. Like we had a mailing list for like, you know, be notified, whatever. And it just grew. And so we felt like, okay, the goal here is to make this thing so that it is produced, it does exist. And... It provides some interesting problems for us to work on, but it's not a full-time thing, probably. Yeah, the other things, the other things that I work on myself. So my my job job, I work at a company called Entopology, which makes very, very specialized CAD software for industrial 3D printing. I work primarily on third-party integrations and partnerships. So basically, the software that we make is it's design software, it's CAD software, but it sits between 
the most common CAD software is like SolidWorks or Siemens NX. These are big programs that do a lot of stuff. You can do assemblies and motion. You can design airplanes or headphones or some parts of cell phones at least, um, water glasses, kind of all range of products in these pieces of CAD software. Our CAD software just does one thing really, really well, which is complex patterns. And so we sit in this area where our users are all using something else and we're not an add-on, but we're we're an additional part of their design process for certain components, which means that you know, not only are we managing our own product and experience when you're in our software, but you're also trying as best you can to manage the handoff from their primary CAD environment into us and then back out of us into, we call it uh, build processing or CAM software. So I work primarily on those kind of third-party relationships and figuring out how to make those transitions easier. Figuring out how to how to form this relationship in a way that's best for our users is is tricky. Yeah, I bet. What about your podcast? Tell us a little bit about the podcast. Yeah, so the podcast came out of the newsletter. So I started this newsletter called The, the Prepared for, for something years ago. And the first couple of issues, I sent out to nobody. It was just me. And then it just like, like you get like five people on, and you're like, oh, I got to do this now. And um, now it's a couple thousand people. I send it every single week. And part of the reason the podcast exists is because the newsletter is kind of about manufacturing and engineering and product management and business. And I kind of realized at a certain point that you know, while like I love to hear myself talk and everything, and I like enjoy writing down my opinions about things, I wanted to have other voices in it as well. In particular, like a more like I am a white dude, like I want to have a more inclusive perspective represented somehow. It's hard though. Like traditionally, I've always said that the newsletter takes about a day to make. I've realized recently that it really takes like two, two and a half days, something like that. And asking somebody who like I don't want some marketing person. I want like a I want somebody who does work, whether that's an engineer or like a manufacturing operations manager or a product manager that in an area that's like relevant here. But asking that person to take like a day and a half, two days out of their schedule to write, which is not something they maybe do commonly, is really, really hard. And so kind of figured, all right, well, I could interview people. The newsletter, the, the podcast is much younger. The podcast is like nine months old, something like that. We've got 14, 15 episodes out. The newsletter, my, my philosophy with it has been, like I, I want to grow it, but I have found that the best way for me to grow it is to produce more consistent, good content, basically, which is a combination of like a lot of it's curation and then a lot of it, it's, it's like a combination of curation and commentary, basically. And I think that it has been it has been good for me. Like at times, someone suggests like, "Ah, oh, why don't you just like buy some Facebook ads, like get a bunch of new subscribers, whatever." And I've I have tried that, and it has it's been like kind of effective. But you don't like get someone to sign up for a newsletter or subscribe to a podcast. Like you have to have there has to be something there. You know, um, there's just too much out there for them to choose to spend time with you. And so it's been good. Like I haven't thought of it explicitly as product management, but 
ultimately what I have fallen back on is that making the product better is a much more effective way <laughs> to grow and to relate to people, to, to have more engaged audience, whatever, than anything else I found. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're creating value. And so yeah, in this yeah. context, the product is content, but if the content isn't meaningful or, or relevant to whoever you're talking to, then yep. yeah, all of the all of the growth engines in the world are, are going to leak out that bottom of that bucket for sure. Mm -hmm. I love that your your mission is about inclusivity. It's It's certainly part of our mission as well here on 100 p.m. We're not holding it against you, by the way, that you're a white guy because <laughs> in the spirit of inclusivity, you need to be included yep. too. Yep. And I appreciate your advice and I'm hoping that you'll, we do a little segment here called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. And I'd love to frame it a little bit more specifically to your background. So with internet of things, with wearables, mm -hmm. hardware is kind of, coming back in a mm -hmm. different kind of way. I mean, some people would probably say it never went anywhere, but there is integrations is, of course, incredibly important, this pairing of software products to hardware products. And I would imagine there's a number of our listeners out there who are either thinking about getting into hardware product management or or maybe have just recently been appointed into roles of hardware product management and are feeling overwhelmed by that because... They know user stories. They know mm -hmm. software delivery methods. They know a lot of the stuff that we haven't been speaking about but do often on the show. What advice would you offer to somebody in that role who either wants to or is just getting into hardware product management for, you know, just succeeding? So I think that in as much as, as I have succeeded, which is uh, up for debate, I think that I owe it to just like doing stuff, right? Like I I have made a little world around myself. That's a slow burn. Like that is a, it takes a long time. And like I said, like I sent a newsletter to nobody a bunch of times, which is hard. And it doesn't get you a job tomorrow or in a month or maybe in a year, right? But it's kind of like I like having a lot of, control over what's going on around me. And so it has kind of like scratched my itches in, in nice ways. One, one thing I learned in construction a bunch of years ago is not to act like you know what you're talking about. There's this great fresh air interview with Tom Wolfe, the author. So Tom Wolfe is famous for wearing a white suit everywhere. And I've actually seen him out like wearing a white suit. It's like really cool. And Terry Gross asked him about this, and he said that early in his career, he went to cover like stock cars or something like that. And he was like a really young journalist and whatever he's like writing in like, I don't know, Vanity Fair or something like that, right? And so he goes down to these like dudes who are racing stock cars and he like tries to like be one of them. And the way he does it was by like wearing a corduroy suit or something like that, <laughs> right? Like shows his time. But he he also just kind of like took on an affectation maybe and and like acted like he knew what was up in stock car racing and of course then when like one of the mechanics is like yeah yeah John has his uh, his hoozy whatsy is uh, broken or whatever and Tom Wolf is like oh yeah yeah his hoozy whatsy like you know sure and as I recall like from kind of then on out he realized that he he was much better off being a man from Mars and wearing a white suit it has let him achieve that where he he never fits in right like he's 
he's never expected to know what the hell is going on because he's wearing a white suit. Like, how weird is that, you know? And, like, for me, having that in the back of my head that if I if I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm I'm better off just really trying not to fit in. And I think that especially in in like heavier industry, typically you're not going to know what you're talking about, right? Like the the more complex your hardware product gets or and software product too for that matter, like the more specialized roles get. And you know, for me like when I was making robot doors, like I it was my job to spec a motor, and I got, we ended up getting this brushless DC gear motor. And like, I don't know anything about brushless DC gear motors, you know. And that was even that was a relatively simple part, but like you like you can only imagine how complex things can get. And if you're not able to put aside your pride and just like ask dumb questions, and like in some cases, I will even like make a show of. I don't know what I'm talking about here, man. Like, can you can you help me out with this? That's been incredibly helpful to me, and it's something that I like. I definitely struggle with too. Like, it's it's hard to do that and keep it in mind. But yeah, no, absolutely. Choose vulnerability for sure, and and, yeah. and I get it. And you spoke earlier about one critical mistake, which was realizing that you had designed really great products that worked for you and and didn't necessarily account for all of the users. Other hard lessons learned on the job re-product management that you can offer this mm. cautionary tale? Yeah, I'll say again. So the Robot Door project that I worked on was extraordinarily complex. And I think that a big part of the problem was that, you know, the company I was working for didn't really have product managers. I was one, but for the most part, we didn't make products. We made windows. But because of the level of complexity of this job, we kind of needed that role. And the issue was, the, the, one of the big issues was that job sites aren't set up that way, right? So there was no counterpoint. Like we were designing a product that was a subcomponent of this house. And in theory, the architect would be kind of a product manager, but they don't really think of themselves that way. And they don't they certainly don't have the language of software product management for sure. And they don't necessarily think of like integration testing. Like what is what is the interaction with this one subcomponent going to look like in the context of this larger house? I think part of that was just because we were bringing embedded systems and like mechatronics on a level that they don't typically deal with. But I think that it also is kind of a structural, a structural thing about like, is this a, product or is it a project? And we had to make like a hundred doors. And so we had to think of them as products. We had to think of them as like each one was a system that was specified as to work a certain way in different conditions. But the house was just a house. Like it was definitely a project. What do you love? I mean, specifically, what do you love about manufacturing hard goods? Ah... Uh, I like seeing stuff happen. I like my first experience was on a job site at like 16 years old. And one of my first experiences was like they were like, take this sledgehammer and knock this wall down. And I can't tell you how empowering that feels. <laughs> like it's like the the idea that you can affect the world around you in, in tangible ways that other people will notice is great. Yeah. 
What about uh, recommended resources, books, blogs, podcasts, anything that you've encountered in your career? Uh, so I think the Toyota way is excellent. It's a tome in the world of manufacturing. I would also really recommend The Mythical Man Month. Uh, the Mythical Man Month is written by, I think he was the OS 360 architect. So System 360 is hugely important computer made by IBM in the 60s, 70s. And OS 360 was the operating system for that computer. And they represented a level of complexity that had never really been done in in operating systems before. And years later, this guy wrote a book about, it's about product management and project management. And it has these just incredible little quips. The, the amazing one is that nine women can't make a baby in one month, right? And it's it, it just talks about both like architecture and like how to lay something out, how to lay a very complex thing out and make sure that everyone's on board. And then also how to achieve it on any kind of a reasonable time scale. Like one of the main lessons being that adding more people to a job typically makes it more late rather than more early. It's really fantastic. Amazing. Both great recommends. We'll, we'll put them on our list at 100productmanagers.com slash resources. Last question. Do you have a personal or professional mantra, soundbite, side-of-the-mug quote that uh, articulates who you are in the world? Uh, not who I am in the world, but don't add any more features. <laughs> don't add any more features. Amen. Spencer Wright, manufacturing guy at large, maker of the public radio. Thank you so much for being part of our show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe in the Apple store at Google Play or on Stitcher or leave us a great review so others can help find us. If you want to get in touch directly, email me, Suzanne, at 100productmanagers.com or visit us on the web. Thank you.